This is the ActiveX Back Show from Edinburgh, Scotland's vibrant capital. Hosted by award-winning registered osteopath, author and all-round pain guru, Gavin Routledge. If you want relief or prevention of lower back pain or sciatica, and you want to be healthier, keep listening. The following programme should not be taken as medical advice, but for informational purposes only. Before we dive into this recording or this episode, I just wanted to send you a brief message to say, note on this recording that the sound, the audio is not quite as good as our usual standard. You may have to crank up the volume as Yanni the spinal surgeon. Yanni the spinal surgeon is slightly further away from the mic than I would like and he's got quite a soft voice. So uh, you might not want to crank up the volume while I'm booming out at the beginning here, but uh, yeah, be prepared to crank up the volume so that you catch all the subtleties of what Yanni has to say. Otherwise, and on another point, Yanni is the first of hopefully many guests to appear on the ActiveX Backs podcast. And there's two ways to be a guest. One is we're looking for experts in their field. Um, I'm not looking really, uh, I'll be approaching some very shortly, but if you are an expert in the field, I'd love to interview you. But more importantly, if you are listening, if you are a sufferer, please send in messages. Um, I'm always, uh, I think we have lots to talk about, but if there's anything you particularly want me to talk about, email me gavin at active-x.co.uk or you can message me on Twitter, ActiveXBax, or on Facebook, ActiveXBax. And if you yourself would like to appear on the podcast talking about your own back pain experience, I would love to have you. We can do that in two formats, a general chit-chat, or you could do an online consultation with me, which I will do for you for free, so long as you agree to have it broadcast uh, so that all the other listeners to the podcast get the benefit of seeing how we work and more importantly uh, getting their own takeaways from that process. I think it can be incredibly useful to hear this, the clinical reasoning and the advice that we would give you uh, can benefit lots of people. So if you're interested in doing a free online consultation and having it broadcast to the world, I know it's a daunting prospect, um, just get in touch. Okay, enjoy this episode with Mr. Yanni or Yanis Fuyas. Sufferers, fellow humans, lend me your ears so that I may whisper into them in order to ease your lower back pain and sciatica, or more accurately, in order that Yanis Fuyas, neurosurgeon, and I may ease your back pain and suffering. So I'm going to kick off by saying thank you, Yanni, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Yanni, I'm going to leave Yanni to describe himself and his, uh, his background, but uh, essentially Yanni Sfuyas is a neurosurgeon here in Edinburgh and Yanni, can you, can you fill in the rest of the details? Certainly, uh, as you can guess from my first name, I'm from Greek, so all those uh, uh, born uh, in England, in Manchester, in 1965, my parents also were Greek. I spent most of my childhood uh, at with the UK and I pursued my undergraduate medical studies in uh, Naples, in Greece. I was very fortunate because as a medical student I was able to come to Cambridge in an exchange and spend a few months uh, with the rest of the students there and I was uh, totally mesmerized with the uh, training, the medical training in, in this country. I thought it was phenomenally comprehensive, very supportive towards junior doctors. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed very much was the fact that junior doctors were allowed to exert responsibility and natural drive. Um, and I decided from that point onwards that I wanted to train in the United Kingdom. I'm very grateful that the system was very supportive uh, for me, although, as I said, I was trained initially abroad and uh, I pursued the whole of my training in the UK, initially in England, and the final few years in Edinburgh, where I also had a chance to pursue a PhD. Uh, and at the end, my trainers um, helped me uh, spend a year in the States, in Cincinnati, where I 
uh, gained further training in the treatment of complex skull-based lesions and vascular lesions as well. Eventually, I completed my training in uh, 2000. I went to Aberdeen for a, couple of, for a few years as a consultant and I returned to Edinburgh in 2008. Uh, as I was saying to you, Gavin, uh, earlier when we first met, uh, despite the fact that uh, from my background, my subspecialist interest, if you like, is that of complex endocrine pathologies, the irony with my trade is that we operate on less and less endocrine pathologies because most of them don't need surgery, some of them are treated with alternative means, but because human beings grow older and understandably and appropriately more demanding in preserving a good quality of life, the spine is a particular organ which bears the grunt of this aging, so the majority of the people I treat have got back problems. Having said that, the spine is very resilient to wear and tear and uh, uh, again, nowadays we operate on very fewer patients, if you like, compared to those that we used to operate when I was a trainee, mm. because thankfully most of them get better with your input rather than mine. Well, I, I think we've both been in practice for long enough to have seen some significant changes, not just in the surgical industry, but definitely in the physical therapy industry as well, in terms of how we approach lower back pain with or without what we would call neuro, uh, neurological involvement. Um, that's, that's really useful, Yanni, to have the background on you. Before we dive into the, the, the kind of main topic of lumbar spinal issues, um, you, it sounds like your particular interest was what you refer to as intracranial vascular lesions, but those are or at least the, the frequency with which you intervene is lower and lower now, and that has pushed you, in a sense, more and more into um, doing much more spinal surgery. That's correct, yes. What has fascinated me over the years of being based in Edinburgh is the, is the and we have to be careful here, we don't offend any sensibilities, but the coming together of orthopaedic spinal surgeons and neurospinal surgeons. Have you any comments on, on that? Um, yes, I do, and that's a very, very challenging question. Uh, neurosurgeons are much more confident and capable, historically, in operating within the spine itself. So, uh, manipulating spinal nerves, uh, operating on lesions in the spinal cord, uh, with, if you like, a knees and, and training that um, is very advantageous. I mean, as, as, a, as a young trainee in your surgery, we started uh, getting our training in spinal surgery from a very early stage, from the first or second year of your training. On the other side, however, the orthopedic surgeons are much more capable in what we broadly describe as instrumentation in our body, so they're very familiar with doing hip replacements, knee replacements, eventually other parts of the body. Right. And uh, uh, historically, they're much more uh, 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 geared into instrumenting the spine, which is unstable for whatever reason, whether it's right. wear and tear, scoliosis, um, infection, or, or, or malignancy. The, it's a very evolving field, the issue of spinal surgery, and mm -hmm. although I'm sure that if you ask three surgeons or give you three different opinions, um, it is an issue of balancing risks and expectations. So Absolutely. you have yeah. somebody, let's say, with an unstable spine that needs a very complex instrumentation, which may make him or her better, but uh, may make them spend six months recuperating. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do uh, perform spinal uh, stabilization in a very selected group of patients and the first thing I say to them is that the recuperation is, is going to be very lengthy and interestingly, that's the first thing they say to me afterwards. I say, oh my goodness, my leg pain is better but my back is still weak. Mm. 
Now, the alternative is that with modern pharmacotherapy, modern physical therapy, we may, or, or with the introduction of, of steroid injections, we may reach a balance that provides the quality of life that individual needs, because, again, that's a very broad uh, category with what somebody may just want a way of walking to uh, the newspaper shop and walking the dogs and uh, uh, spend the time resting, which I think is a very, very sensible way of living the life. And some people want to keep on run, running marathons at the age of 80. Yeah. So um, I, I, I don't inherently believe in the uh, division between the neurosurgical perspective of spinal surgery, which is concentrating on, on neurogenic pain, and the orthopedic standpoint, which is stabilizing the spine, which has a mechanical component in symptomatology in attempt to make the quality of life better. And uh, where I concentrate is on the needs of the individual patient. Right. Right. So I am inherently a very conservative surgeon, but you say to me, do I ever stabilize the degenerative spine? On occasions I do. Hmm. Okay, so let's get into the detail of what that might involve. Um, you and I share at least one patient, um, but I'm sure there have probably been many over the years that we haven't perhaps been aware of. Um, the questions that I often have and feel to the best of my ability, but it's much better to hear it from the horse's mouth, is what are the most common lumbar spinal procedures? And, 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 and let, let's try and keep that narrow. So for instance, for someone who has a prolapsed disc, which is causing um, nerve compression, uh, which has been demonstrated on MRI, We've accepted that the symptoms pretty much meet the match the picture that you see on an MRI. What what's likely to happen to that person? Uh, given that there's a lot of consultation going on about the pros and cons of surgery, and we'll come to that in a moment. What do you actually do? Yes. So the somebody with a lumbar disc prolapse who presents with neurogenic pain, generally we the individuals that we operate or end up needing our attention can categorized in three major groups. You've got the thankfully uncommon scenario of the Codequina syndrome with a very large disc prolapse causing numbness in the private areas which generally is operated on an urgent or emergency basis. You've got the individual that has a sciatica which remains very disabling for more than let's say six to eight weeks despite uh, optimal pharmacotherapy and physical therapy. And for that sort of group of patients, the decisions between surgery or a steroid injection. The steroid injection has a much more modest uh, likelihood of long-term effectiveness, generally, I would say 30 to 40%. Surgery has a much higher chance of success, I would say 90%, but the issue about surgery is that the actual surgical trauma forces the individual patient to be very cautious for six to eight weeks afterwards. There's a small risk of the disc coming out again in further surgery, around 10%, and there's a small risk of infection. What people dread, which is the development of, of a major catastrophe with weakness or numbness or lack of sensation as a result of the surgery from a damaged nerve, thankfully, is very, very uncommon. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's something worth knowing. And I mean, as an individual, I always try to put myself on the patient's shoes. Obviously, I'm 55 years old. Some of my patients are younger than me. Some of them are older. But if, for argument's sake, I would have severe sciatica for more than six to eight weeks, making me unable to work and do my job, and if I was to have an injection with that's a very short-term effectiveness, and I know that my clinical progress will be impaired for at least another six or eight weeks, then I will accept the operation, knowing that within eight weeks I will be much better, thankfully. These are the second group of patients. And the third group of patients are those who 
have persistent pain for several months and they have resisted the option surgery because naturally don't want to uh, introduce any unknown in the management and as such I'm talking the infection, the, the, uh, the chance of this uh, recurring but these people are still in pain and eventually uh, we, we do operate on them. It's, it's very interesting because uh, despite the fact that uh, surgery doesn't have much of randomized evidence and, and as such I'm talking about high quality information to support what we do, in spinal surgery we do have randomized evidence that does potentially uh, support what I'm just saying that surgery is aimed to people who want to get better faster understanding that even if they don't have the operation there's a quite good life likelihood that in the long term they may get better mm. nevertheless more slowly yeah so this is generally the, the, the three broad categories that i treat okay in the patient sciatica from a disc prolapse which as as, as you suspected is is the common scenario yeah. that i'm involved with and so if 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 surgery goes ahead what, if you can describe on an anatomical level, what do you actually do? What we do is we put the patient prone, lying on, on his or her, her tummy. We do an incision in the midline. We'll fill the bone in the spine, which are called the sponge processes. These are bones protruding from the spine and we dissect the muscle from the side. As we do that, at the back of the spine, there is a gap between the bones that we normally uh, dissect and we enlarge. We're very fortunate that we use a, a very sophisticated microscope during this procedure which enlarges the surgical field almost 50 times and the illumination is, is, is truly amazing. So, so our ability to identify the tissues is exceptionally good. So we remove that part of the tissue between the bones, then we've identified the nerve which is squashed we manipulate it sideways and then we remove the part of the disc which is squashing it. Mm. And as a non-surgeon myself, as someone yes. who did some dissection when he was a student, but with cadavers, dead yes. people rather than real people, I'm fascinated by that actual surgical procedure. So when you say you remove that bit of disc, what, what's it like? What kind of substance is it? It's like hard toothpaste. Okay. The surface of it is like very hard rubber, mm -hmm. but the actual substance of the disc, which is most likely compressing the nerve, is, is very soft. And this is what we would call the nucleus pulposus, Indeed, yes. which has come out the from the central part yes. of the disc. So, so it's presumed, or I don't know, but over time, so let, let's say there's a fresh prolapse, let's say it's happened in the last week, will the the consistency of that tissue, that nuclear material, will it change over weeks and months? Generally, it probably does, yes, and that's why not infrequently you do a scan acutely after the onset of the pain where you can see the big disc and you can repeat the scan after six months and the disc may have regressed. Mm -hmm. So, although we never operate the same patient twice to, to make comparisons, mm -hmm. uh, no. uh, take into account what we find in MRI scans, that there is no doubt that in the significant proportion of individuals, the consistency, the size, and the appearance of the prolapse will change over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I frequently, or pretty much always, say to patients, you know, once once that stuff's come out of the disc, it's never going back in, but your immune system will attack it and break it down over time. And I guess this is what's known as resorption. It's not really an accurate term, resorption. It's not that it's resorbed. No, no it is. Actually, I, I think it is. No, it's I, resorbed I, by your no, whole body. I, I, I use the term resorption frequently mm -hmm. when, when patients ask me whether this can shrink over time. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the term resorption is accurate. No, I, 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 I that doesn't mean it sucks back into the disc. No, but it is involution. I use the right. term resorption like involution. So you've got a tissue which is swollen yeah. and gradually the, the constituents shrink spontaneously. They don't necessarily go through the whole of the surface yeah. that they egress from. 
-hmm. but the actual tissue shrinks spontaneously all the time. Yeah. It's very difficult to know what happens because in theory yeah. new scar tissue may form and then you, you may find that the actual annulus reforms as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of the question, sometimes we we operate when we do redo discectomies, for example, mm -hmm. where you have removed the disc, you left a hole in the surface that generally is covered with scar tissue, but let's say after several years, the disc content can come out and we reoperate. Mm -hmm. The actual annulus doesn't look much different to the annulus of a disc that has never been operated. Right. So it's the issue of resorption, although I don't think we've got pathological support to be dogmatic about it, I think it does. And I wouldn't be surprised if the annulus itself heals. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I said, certainly with, with surgery in redo operations, we do see that. Yeah. So if you've seen someone who has, as, as best we can estimate it, a recent prolapse mm -hmm. versus someone who has an old one, can, can you see any difference in the surface of the annulus? In general, you'd anticipate the annulus to be much more uh, stretched and uh, weakened. In a in recent, recent, recent one, one, yes. Yeah. Whereas in, in, the, in a chronic prolapse, you'd anticipate the tissue to be more hardened. Okay. I mean, well, that's, that's, that, that is black and white, but yeah, that's, that's yeah. generally what you anticipate. And so that's natural scar tissue formation forming over the defect in the annulus? Yes, 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 I think so. Yeah, yeah. Good, because that's why I always say to patients is that they will, in the natural history of these things is hopefully that the disc will heal over, uh, but that takes time and that inflammation is the first stage of that process. In general, I totally agree with what you say. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's my interpretation on the evolution of the pathology. Mm. Okay, um, so, so you've gone in, you've removed that piece of prolapsed material, uh, and then what happens? What you and then you close the wound. With the wound. Uh, but coming back to what we said earlier about the fact that we leave a small hole in the annulus, this is relevant mm. because that hole, if you like, reduces the resistance of the disc to allow whatever we left in the disc space protruding again mm -hmm. and causing a recurrent disc prolapse. Yeah. And the obvious question is, is there ever any attempt to patch up that hole? There used to be. Right. There used to be. One of the most fascinating things about surgery, Gavin, is that the greatest breakthroughs in my trade occurred over 40 years ago. Really? And no matter how much we want to modernize mm -hmm. what we do, find new ways of making surgery less risky and more effective in the long term, I don't believe that we've achieved that. So the microdiscectomy that we do, that I perform my patients, was introduced over 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And as you alluded to, sometimes people try to patch the hole with foreign materials, sometimes they try to um, uh, use artificial discs to cover the, the gap, sometimes they try to enforce uh, the area with other materials to reduce the risk of, of mechanical back pain, sometimes they inject steroids. Um, but the bottom line is that if I had sciatica in an operation, I would rather have the operation that was done for the first time 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't think that there's any other alternative currently that has genuine superiority mm -hmm. from a technical standpoint. But yeah. some, sometimes I have questions, particularly from people from North America who talk about disc replacement. Right. Um, but what you're saying is, in terms of the evidence, that those are it's fascinating. Broadly, no more effective. Uh, the way the way surgeons think, and uh, yes, I think we shouldn't uh, stereotype. But uh, I can understand why the public stereotypes when they. Uh, describe surgeons as not being as as, as um, uh, deep in our thought process when we 
we, 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 we make decisions on what should be done about a particular scenario. But I'm very fortunate that, as I said to you, I've been through lots of changes in our philosophy. I remember 23 years ago, I was in the, in the, in the, in, in the most major neurosurgical meeting in, in New Orleans, and people were debating as to whether, the debate was about cervical surgery, whether they should just fuse a disc or put fuse and plate, and put a plate in front of it. And they were saying, oh, if you fuse it, the chance of success is 90%. If you plate it, it's 92%. Can we do any better? And they were arguing that this 2% difference was important. And mm. I said to myself, the, the level of, I mean, I, wouldn't, I, mean, I, would say, I don't want to call it ignorance, because nobody's ignorant, but the, the, the embarking on the, on, the wrong, on, the wrong, on the wrong area, essentially, just, mm. just, just concentrating. On, on the wrong uh, part of what you do. Because if we accept that the healing process of the human body is not insignificant, mm -hmm. all you need to do that surgery is remove the inflammation, the cause of pain. The rest, the body can do it. Yeah. I mean, there are exceptions, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I don't think that any uh, new development in the techniques that we employ to open discs is generally superior to what we historically do. I mean, for example, uh, a few years ago I tried to learn how to do the endoscopic discectomy, which has the advantage of allowing the individual patient to go home much earlier. Mm -hmm. But I have to say it was technically a more risky procedure. So I, so I don't want to create an operation which is riskier in an attempt to make the patient have a shorter recovery. The mm -hmm. recovery is not the priority, the priority is to reduce the risk of the procedure. Yeah, yeah. and endoscopic meaning you're not opening somebody up, no. you're going through a small But you've got a very small hole, but the access you have yeah. from the disc and the nerve is very limited. You can't very see that clearly. So you've closed the person back up. After that, given that there must be significant variations, particularly age-related, how long might rehabilitation take? How rapidly could that person feel the benefit of surgery? In terms of the leg pain, it's quite soon. The majority of patients will feel better in terms of the sciatica within 48 hours, and most of the people will feel better within six weeks. The, the back pain is not insignificant. I mean, sometimes I tell them that they feel that, that they've been having pulled muscles, sometimes they feel they've been kicked by, by horse, yes, yeah. wound, yeah, so. And interestingly, the, the extent of the dissection with a individual patient is not uh, in line with the intensity of pain. You can do a very small incision and the patient may have more stiffness and pain than in some of the bigger incisions. So you cannot predict how, how much stiffness and pain and discomfort the individual have necessitated in rehabilitation mm -hmm. based on, on the actual operation itself. Yeah. Yes, obviously, you always try to dissect only the tissues that you have to, to, to explore the risk and nothing more. But, uh, but generally speaking, uh, people will find it difficult to uh, uh, perform the normal movements of the spine for, for several for several weeks. Mm. Uh, and I can say it with myself, because one of the commonest uh, uh, causes of back pain on people of our age is, is facet joint irritation. And I have facet joint irritation myself, and sometimes when I operate under the microscope with a very particular and skewed posture on my back for let's say an hour, then I feel very, very uncomfortable and that settings, but I know during that discomfort I can hardly twist my back. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, so I guess patients after back surgery will have the same kind of stiffness and discomfort which settles within days or, or weeks. Okay, and, and talking about those outcomes, uh, either as uh, from your own personal experience or uh, 
and by reference to the literature, what, what are the main factors that determine outcomes in spinal surgery? So you talked about failed back syndrome, for instance, as a bad outcome. Yes. Do we know which patients are most likely to do well versus which will not? Certainly the patients whose pain is of neurogenic origin, i.e. inflammation of the nerves, and from the clinical history and the examination, the causes of that neurogenic pain seem to be directly related to irritation of the nerve. Mm. For example, patients who have more pain when they sit, when they get up from sitting position, whose pain improves when they lie in bed, whose pain gets better when you raise their leg, uh, who uh, find that particular positions cause more pain or less pain. That's what we call the mechanical mm -hmm. association of neurogenic pain. Those people generally have a very high chance of getting better because from the history it seems that particular positions will cause more irritation than them. And thus, if you take away the whole irritation, the chance of that inflamed nerve getting better are much higher. Mm -hmm. and obviously, nothing in medicine is, is black or white. We do know that many people who have no symptoms do have disc bulges on the scan, so the scan cannot give us the answer as to whether the cause of the pain is the disc bulge we see on the scan. Sometimes the nerve may be a bit bruised from the pressure from the disc, so even if you take out, if you, if you remove the pressure, that bruising can cause persistent pain. Sometimes during the operation, you have to manipulate the nerve a little bit to extirpate the disc, and that manipulation can cause potentially damage to the nerve. So there are these, these pitfalls that mm. cannot make me say that the chance of success with surgery on the patient that we feel that it should be successful is 100%. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, I say to my patients that the pain will have a chance between 80 and 90 percent chance of improving significantly uh -huh. uh, on, on that type of scenario. Now, the, the failed back syndrome is a very is a very complex scenario. I think uh, historically, part of the reason you have failed back surgery was because clinicians would see a, a disc on a scan and assume that that disc should cause pain, which we know is not true. Mm -hmm. So some of the patients who had failed back surgery from, say, 20 years ago, I think that scenario is relevant. Yeah. And uh, we do know now, as I said, that you can see a disc bulge, which may not be causing any symptoms. Um, uh, nowadays, um, the majority of patients that we see with failed back syndrome, which thankfully have to add, are not that many. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, yes, we do have some patients that you can do an operation, see an excellent scan, and still be in residual pain. That, that I wouldn't cause that, cause us as failed back surgery, mm -hmm. which is the individual who come in a wheelchair, who can hardly walk, who is on morphine, and, and has a, a, a totally horrible life. I mean, that's, that's what I call a failed back surgery. Uh, one of the reasons that people thought that failed back surgery is caused because of scar tissue. I mean, that was something that we, we used to uh, uh, describe the patients and sort of warn them about when we were consenting them 20 years ago very, very frequently. But I don't see much pain nowadays from, from, from scar tissue. I mean, I would say, the most likely failure of these patients is that the disc that you operate perhaps wasn't causing the pain. Mm. Yeah. And the other possibility is that our newer neuropathic medication may be more effective. I think people with take up a pentin per gabalin and you find that it's normally effective. So mm. we either have less of a failed vaccine on nowadays or more effective ways of treating it. Yeah. And it sounds like from what if I'm reading correctly between the lines, part, part of that may be that 20 years ago there was more of an inclination to treat the scan or the x-ray exactly. and exactly. now we're treating patients. Absolutely. And, 
terms of helping someone to make a decision around whether to go for surgery or not, are there, it may not be hard and fast rules, but are there things that are, clearly we know what, well, you and I know what red flags are, but the person listening to this may very well not, and I think you mentioned earlier, cauda equina syndrome, and certainly we stress in our intake form in the clinic, we ask all these questions, do you have any problems, recent problems with waterworks, bowels, any numbness in your pelvic floor, the bit that you sit on if you're on a saddle, um, all these kind of red flag questions. But excluding those, um, are there, sh should I rush to have surgery now? Is there a window of opportunity? Uh, no, I don't think so. So even if I defer it by six months, if I'm still in as much pain in six months as I am now, it's not that I've missed, uh, you know, I've not reduced the chances that I'm getting a successful outcome. I agree with you. Yes. So there is um, uh, a group of surgeons who claim that if you don't have an operation within two years from the onset, the sciatica, the chance of success is, 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 is very modest. Um, that's not my personal experience. I mean, I see patients that sometimes have had pain for more than two years. I still operate on them and they could get better. Um, one of the important points that individuals should be aware of is that the pressure that the, the disc exerts on the nerve does not necessarily damage the nerve. With the only exception of the quadriquine I will mention, if you have a nerve which is crossed for three months, six months, nine months, when you decompress it, it's not more likely to be damaged if you wait for nine months. And that's why I don't think that there is, strictly speaking, a, a, a window of opportunity to operate on, on the individual sufferer of pain. The important thing is, 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 is how the pathology in the clinical syndrome affects its individual's quality of life. I mean, that I may come back to what I said, I put myself on the patient's shoes. If I had, let's say, sciatica that prohibits me from doing my job, and I find out that there hasn't been any improvement at all within, to say, six to eight weeks, and I have tried any inflammatories, painkillers, potentially steroid injection, and then I know that the likelihood is that my pain would last for let's say six months before it gets better then I would be giving of an operation knowing that the main issue about surgery is the recuperation or what you just described as rehabilitation I think that is something which not underestimate and, yeah. um, and that's what I say to most of the people who let's say are um, either still working or um, uh, uh, cannot take, let's say, six to eight weeks off work without it being a, a major inconvenience. Mm. But there, 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 are no, there are no right or wrong rules. Yeah, 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 I get that. It um, just comes down to the individual. Yes. Like the discussion with the individual of weighing up the pros and cons. Um, it shouldn't sound surprising to spend more time discussing with the individual about the operation than actually performing it. <laughs> Yeah. The, the, the time it takes for this me to be executed from the beginning to the end is around 50 minutes. Wow. When I consult patients, uh, it takes me between 30 minutes and 40 minutes on the initial consultation and 20 minutes on the consultation when they sign the, con the, the consent. Mm -hmm. so it takes me longer describing what to expect than actually doing the operation itself. Yeah, yeah. And as a small aside, as I mentioned, um, um, Mr. Fuyasso, Yanis and I do share at least one patient and I can confirm that the lady in question did say that you have a tremendous way about you in putting the patient at ease and spending as much time as she felt was necessary to discuss the pros and cons and I think that's, that's tremendous um, rather than just saying, okay, you're, we'll send you up. Uh, you're very kind, but it comes with, with, with experience and age, because one of the things you realize when you've been a consultant for 
almost 20 years is that what people understandably worry about is unexpected problems. Mm. The two things that people find difficult to accept very correctly is something that they're unaware of yeah. or expecting more from an operation that the operation can offer. Mm. So if you say to the patient, be fine, then they find that they've got a bit of, let's say, facet joint pain. You haven't told them about that, then understandably they will be very worried. Or if they have a bit of numbness in the thighs from, let's say, compression of the lateral tenuous nerve of the thigh from the positioning, they will worry. Uh, or if you tell them that they'll be 100% better, they will worry. So. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's, 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 it's not just the empathy that obviously we, 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 we all should have and have, but uh, it, there are a lot, of, a lot of practical aspects about every surgery that uh, we, we tend to, to ignore us or underestimate. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm following. Um, uh, major sort of uh, cases, not related to spinal surgery, I have to say, in terms of the consenting process. Uh, uh, although I understand this is a bit peripheral to what we are talking about, I think it's the most important part of what we do. I think uh, if you see an operation that's on YouTube, you'll be amazed how the patient can can withstand the surgical trauma. But the actual operation itself, I mean, the, the, the steps are very, very straightforward with with microscope and mm. the visualization. But uh, it is very interesting to, to, to accept, and, and, and I'm very pleased that the General Medical Council is trying to repeat it to us that each individual patient is different. So, what's what? So, we have, we have 10 patients having the same type of pain. But the effect of that pain of having ten, these ten different people is going to be totally different. Yeah. So uh, you're very kind what you say about, about, about your patient, but it, it is, believe it or not, a very important part of what we do, just making sure that mm. people understand uh, what to expect. And spinal surgery, you should be able to explain mm. to people what, what you do because the anatomy is very clear. He's not doing a very complicated endocrine operation in brainstem that is very difficult to, yeah. to follow. Yeah. But anyway, very kind for what you said. Well, um, by way perhaps of wrapping up, I, I like to pose this question because this is the way I deal with patients' questions to me is uh, how, how to choose a spinal surgeon. Uh, and given that you are one, uh, perhaps if you were advising someone on the other side of the world, a family member, um, what would you advise someone to look for uh, in a spinal surgeon? As I said at the beginning of uh, the discussion, I'm very fortunate to have the chance to be trained in the kingdom. And uh, I still believe that the training in this country is of the highest quality. And as I said, I've been exposed to the North American training process as well. Uh, in general, uh, the, the quality of, of, of surgery and medical services in the United Kingdom is, is, is excellent. So if my family were to do spinal surgery, I'm sure any of my colleagues mm -hmm. consultants in, in Scotland would be capable in, in delivering an excellent service. It, it sounds like I can't pin you down in terms of... Uh, so in, in my profession, yes. I would say that there's good, bad and indifferent. Hopefully not many bad, but there's probably the, the odd one. Um, and I just wondered, for me, what I would look for in, a, in any surgeon, especially, is the communication. Is, as you said, um, taking the time um, to make sure I didn't feel rushed and that I was making a very well-informed decision in collaboration and looking for your experience and your input, but ultimately feeling like I was the one making the decision. Yes, yes, and I do believe that patients have the ability to discern that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I'm not talking about only spinal surgery. I, the most difficult on occasions uh, communications that I have with individuals is when I perform uh, intracranial procedures. See, the, 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 the difference between intracranial procedures and spinal procedures is that in spine, the risk of, of a bad outcome in the form of damaging a nerve or causing cholecystitis is exceptionally small, thankfully. Mm. Whereas in intracranial surgery, the risk of having complications is not insignificant. And uh, it's very, very eye-opening when, as you said, you explain clearly to individuals what the risks are, that they're much more willing to accept them because, because they make sense, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, um, communication is very, very important, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yes. Um, however, I do believe that it should also be sort of accompanied by uh, the appropriate expertise. Mm. And uh, uh, I have to confess that we're very lucky living in Scotland. The quality of, of the health services in, in Scotland and in the is, is an exceptional, of exceptionally high quality. I mean, naturally, the difficulty that the service has is that, as at the beginning, we're, we're living longer mm. and with more expectations. So, the, the access to the services is unfortunately an issue. But once you reach the services, the, the delivery of the services, I don't think that anybody will argue that it's of a very high quality. No, no, I'm sure, absolutely right. Um, just a, a little aside before we wrap up, Jana, we, we talked perhaps off mic about degenerative change in the spine. And this is a term that uh, causes people all sorts of anxieties. You know, oh, he said I have a worn spine, I have degenerative changes. And the impression, not just the impression, but we know this from the research, when we start to use these kind of terms, people often then catastrophize, they think that's the beginning of the end for them and it's a one-way track. But from your experience, you actually get to see inside people's spines. Um, should be concerned about degeneration in the spine? Not at all. If there's one thing that the, the listeners should take from our discussion is that they shouldn't be worried at all if they would have a scan which shows wear and tear and degeneration. Yeah. And a whole page of totally incomprehensible terms it means nothing. I mean, you can be a marathon runner. I can assure them that the most successful professional athletes have degeneration in the spine, probably more than the average individual of their age. And uh, it's it's probably the uh, uh, the problem with 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 the development technology, as we said. In the beginning, uh, we both started our training when the, the MRI scan was introduced and uh, our ability to identify even minute mm. abnormalities in our body has been unique. Yeah. And it took us 10 years to realize that it doesn't matter what you see, yeah. 10 years to disseminate it to the rest of the non-specialists and probably another 20 years to disseminate with the public. Yeah. So having wear and tear in the spine means, I wouldn't say it means nothing, actually everybody does have wear and tear in the spine. Yeah. I don't think that anybody at the age of 50 will have, will have a bit of stiffness in the morning, a bit of difficulty putting on the socks from time to time, mm. but the chances of that feature causing progressive problems is not true. Yeah. So that's something that not be worried at all. So, so we can think of degeneration the way we think of grey hair. Exactly, and I've got lots of it as well as you can see. <laughs> yes, it's just listeners fortunately we're not live on video here so uh, yeah well. Exactly. So, so yeah, exactly. it's, just, it's just part of part of It's like having grey hair, exactly. Yeah. Good, well um, for anyone listening in who would like to get in touch with you or the other spinal surgeons here at the Spire Murrayfield Hospital in Edinburgh, um, how do they get in touch? How do they find it? More they can the, uh, contact my PA through the Spire uh, website, and uh, it's, it's very clear how to yeah. uh, get hold uh, of uh, my PA. 
and uh, but as I said, all the spinal surgeons are excellent. I don't think that any one of them is any better than anybody else. And uh, for those, and the majority of patients I treat, I treat them on the NHS as well. So the primary care physicians can can refer the patients to me. But I have to to add that uh, a very very small number of individuals will need surgery. I think mm-hmm. I think you you are much more important than I am in the treatment of, of, of back pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, uh, rely on people like yourself and physiotherapists a lot. I mean, most of the people I'm uh, involved with, especially in my NHS practice, have been scrutinized by an expert physiotherapy team and only the ones that need surgery come to see me. Yeah. which is a very efficient way of avoiding yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Lengthy, lengthy waiting times. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously for those who don't want to uh, wait for too long, or for those who uh, want to have a face-to-face consultation earlier, I mean, there's this, this, this option of uh, uh, seeking the uh, services inspire. Uh, but in the majority of patients, I don't think that's necessary. Mm. I think if I was to pursue an avenue, I'd rather be seen by yourself and get guided by yourself than, than if you like, jumping to seeing a, a, a spinal surgeon. Yeah, well, I think it helps if we all have good working relationships exactly. with one another and recognize our own limitations and when to refer and exactly. uh, when not to um, over alarm people. Um, I totally agree. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, Yanni. It's been a thank you very much for everything, Gavin. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be in touch off mic as well. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Active X Back Show. If you found this helpful, please pass along our web address to your friends and colleagues. Active-X.co.uk and please leave us a positive review on iTunes. If you have any questions related to lower back pain or sciatica, send them in, and Gavin will aim to answer them in future episodes. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at ActiveXBacks.